in the 90s, during the time when, it was, when I originally did most of my work, people were complaining the same thing. There's no place to work today. These, you have these oppressive institutions. And Dave used to say, power's all around you. Everyone's just afraid to go around and pick it up. And we use it as an excuse. I should have paused there because that would be going to end for the podcast. Power is all around you, and we're all just afraid to pick it up. Hi, and welcome to Eminent Americans, a podcast about the contemporary intellectual scene. I am your host, Daniel Oppenheimer, a self-anointed intellectual historian of the present. And uh, my guests today on the podcast are Gary Kornblau and Blake Smith. Gary, Blake, welcome to the podcast. Blake, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hello, welcome for having me. So our our topic today is both the 30th anniversary edition of The Invisible Dragon, the seminal work by art critic and essayist Dave Hickey, but also, I guess, the original edition, the 1993 edition of Invisible Dragon, which was subtitled Four Essays on Beauty. I'm now forgetting, Gary, what you subtitled the new one. It's like Essays on Beauty and Other Things or something like other that. Other Matters, yes. And Other Matters, I'm sorry. That's classier than Other Things. Um and then I guess just more broadly, we'll be talking about what the scene was like, what the cultural scene and particularly the the visual arts scene was like in the 90s, what those things are like today, how the book has aged, what Gary has done with the new edition, because it's not simply the typical anniversary edition of a book that maybe has a new intro, but otherwise is the same. It has the original four essays. It has a short forward by Gary, a long afterward by Gary, and then three additional essays by Dave um, that were uncollected, that were published in his lifetime, but never collected in in, in book version. So it's a substantially different book. And we're going to talk to Gary. And I want to talk to Gary about kind of why that was and what his goals were. So just to give you a little bit of context on the, the two men who've joined me, Gary Kornblau is the founder of Art Issues magazine, founder and editor for its duration. He's the founder and ongoing editor of Art Issues Press, which is a small independent press that kind of emerges every once in a while from hibernation to put out new books as needed by the culture and Gary's whims. And Blake Smith, I guess you're an independent scholar and writer at this point, right? Blake? I, I, I'm, I'm technically affiliated, but by the barest of margins. Yeah. And man about Bulgaria at the moment. Gary is out in L.A. where he teaches at the Art Center College of Design and does other various impresario-like things. Blake, what is your vague affiliation at this point? Uh, I'm at the Center for Advanced Study uh, here in Sofia, Bulgaria. Uh, wow, that's fancy sounding. My magazine and my press is actually run by the Foundation for Advanced Critical Studies. Um, which is my... Uh, so they're not only advanced, but critical. So it's, right, it's right. Further, and right? of course, when we made up that name in 1992, it was supposed to be ironic, but no one ever saw it that way. In <laughs> yeah, reality, we're of a pair, I think. <laughs> it's funny, Gary, the way you said that initially, it was as though it was some external organization that funded you. But then you gave right. away. Well, then you gave away the game, which is just it's a just a kind of self-glorifying right. and yeah. ironic title. So, welcome to the podcast, guys. Gary, I guess I just want to start for you and ask you to sort of set the scene of who Dave was when you met him. I think you met him in 1989, 90. Kind of what ensued from there, and how the Invisible Dragon, the original one, came about. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Dave had a lot of lives before I met him. I think you're you're actually having written the book on Dave are more familiar with the ins and outs of that life, which was, from my understanding, very complicated and interesting. I met him in 1990 as he was just recovering and coming out of a decade um, of sort of drug rehab, probably, and lots of personal disasters. Well, drug use and drug use, well, drug but, use I mean, and, and rehab. <laughs> it's lost decade, yeah. He stopped drinking he, and drinking drugs in the 80s. So when I met him, I was just beginning a small art magazine that started to gain a little bit of success. And with that came the notion that the magazine needed to grow, or at least that was the pressure that was on me. Um, I wanted a, to keep it, if I could, something close to 32 pages with 10 pages of ads or 20-page magazine. Not a zine, but more like a, a real magazine, but tiny. So it was sort of eccentric for its time. And in the idea, in, in getting burnt out in, in publishing it regularly, I decided that I wanted to start doing a book instead of a magazine once a year, like instead of an issue of the magazine. So Dave had written a couple pieces for me, one on uh, Liberace, one on Siegfried and Roy, who were Las Vegas magicians, and one on Chet Baker, which is one of his old um, mentors, haunts, I suppose. And I went to him and I said, would you like to you know, put together a book? It was not the kind of thing that I, that I expected a positive answer to because Dave did not write books. He never wrote books. He was an essayist. And I knew that this had to just be a collection of essays. And Dave was resistant to the idea. He did tell me that he had an, a lecture that he was had been giving on Robert Maplethorpe, comparing Maplethorpe's expert portfolio to Shakespeare's sonnets, talking about Maplethorpe's images as themselves a way of enfranchising us as, a, as opposed to a way to shock us or something, which I was already discussed. And so he says he wanted to publish that, but no one would publish it. And I asked him why no one would publish it. And he said, they won't print these images. There was a jacking image, which is a finger in a, in a penis, a fisting image. And at that time, that was something that just even by progressive art magazines would not be done. And Dave, to his credit, said, I'm not going to let you publish it without it. So I said, we'll publish it. So, but what what can we put with it? And he also had this essay, this short essay that became the first essay in The Invisible Dragon that he had to expand substantially, which he did. And then we didn't know what else to put with it. He had this piece called Promenade in Flatland. And he said, maybe that can go. And then, and so I said, well, we need a fourth essay. So I, I had him write for the magazine, the last essay in the book called After the Great, Great Tsunami. And that became the four essays on beauty. Did you have a sense, Dave started writing for you in 1990. He started with that essay, Lost Boys on Siegfried and Roy and their, their show in Las Vegas. I don't know how else to put this than just to say that he was special. I mean, in retrospect, not that the only influence that art issues had on the sort of broader cultural scene was Dave, but certainly if there was a writer through whom you exerted influence, it was clearly Dave, right? And and it's even the people who don't like him can look back and say, well, okay, he was extraordinary in a sort of, you know, in a technical sense. Did you have that sense of him as a writer early on, or was it more just like he was one of the people you were working with and he was the one that for, you know, some constellation of reasons you thought you'd do this book, this first book with? I knew there was something very peculiar and unique about Dave. I had a lot of writers like that. Most of them were more 
usually a little older than me, but more of my generation. Dave was one of the few writers I had who were substantially older than I was. And there was an experience he had that was unique to me, just from that perspective. The way we came to him writing for me and writing, for example, the Siegfried and Roy piece was made me think that there's something very, very special about this. Because every other writer I spoke to, I'd ask them what they want to write about and whatnot. Dave was only interested in sort of pleasing people, pleasing me. It was a very strange phenomenon. He wanted to know what I wanted wanted him to do. And that was a different kind of experience for me as an editor. And I realized that there was a way in which there was a specialness to his writing is that he would he would transform whatever topic he talked about, which he took from someone else, and then made it his own, mm. as opposed to trying to get his views out in the world. He would take someone else's interests and needs and sort of make it into a Dave piece. And so the Siegfried and Roy piece clearly came about because... I was gay at the time it was at. He was in Las Vegas. It, it was a kind of like, that's the right thing. That's what I would like, he thought. Uh, he was right. But that's that, it was like done as a, like a, a gift. Dave was, this was Dave's whole thing was he gave permission to editors to make the decisions. And then at the same time, he then made it all about himself. There was a kind of weird permission and narcissism that went together that was completely unique and came out in the writing. So when you say, did I recognize in the writing? I said, yes, the writing ended up being exactly what I needed at the time and gave permission to everybody who who read it in a certain way. He gave a certain kind of permission through his writing, which is why people continue to be interested in him, I think, is that they recognize that he's giving them permission as opposed to stating from on high some position. Um, so I recognized that pretty much immediately. When I spoke to him, I'm not so sure, but when the essay came in, I immediately knew that there was something really special there. Yeah. Blake, what were you going to... Uh, the essay came in, by by the way, by fax. You know, but... we, we, had, we had some back and forth just yesterday or the day before on, on the my Weimar thing. And I mean, it made me think like the kind of models of seduction that Hickey stages in the different essays. So there's like him being kind of seduced into the life of mind by Volbach. And then there's Picasso and like the the hustler character in numbers as these kind of masters of seduction, but who themselves are very needy and who really, really want approval. Like the other day I was still kind of struggling with how Hickey's own representation of what the artist is doing doesn't seem to quite match like his own practice because it seems like he's representing kind of heroic, very powerful figures. But he also does, he does point to that fundamental kind of neediness and greediness for approval. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll get to this in the course of the conversation, but right, I mean, part of what's like queer about this is that it, it's not clear if this is male or female, and if this is like active or passive, that like having a power through wanting to please so badly. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, that's very insightful. I, well, I, I mean, Blake, you're pointing to a lot of the things where I think I, I can say both that I think you're really onto something and also that I'm utterly confused as to what it is, because I think some of the ways that the essays and there's the one in Dragon, and I'm trying to think of who his theoretical reference are, but he talks a lot 
about you know art as a sadomasochistic endeavor and 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 where i tend to lose the thread i mean just i honestly lose the thread but i think there's something there but before we get into that gary i want you were about to talk about setting the scene and and i think one thing i want you to set the scene 1993 but i want to be clear what i imagine it to be in retrospect from 2023 and and i read dave first probably around 2000 at a time when i was even less connected to what might be going on in the art scene than i am now and i'm still only sort of tangentially connected to it so mm -hmm. i imagine it in the context of the wars around political correctness battles like the battle over the exhibition of maplethorpe's photography at the cincinnati museum of art artists like andre serrano piss christ and questions about funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, and that there was this basic binary between the sort of good, queer, freedom-loving, liberal-minded artists on the one hand, and then the censorious, oppressive, conservative people like Jesse Helms on the other hand who wanted to repress that art. And what Dave did was come in orthogonal to that dynamic and not quite say a pox on both your houses in some sense say a pox on the the ostensible good guys in that conflict but that's what i've retrospectively imposed on it what was your sense to the extent you can go back to 1993 when you published invisible dragon what was your sense of the conversation and the, the scene that dave was intervening in in some sense um I think part of it is what you how you how you described it that there was a binary sort of between the good progressives and the bad conservatives, similar to the binary that that's sometimes presented today. The culture wars very much uh, rhymed with those today. I would complicate that a little by suggesting that within, say, the gay world, we didn't call it queer at the time, uh, within the gay world I was in, there's also another binary between the gays, the, what what has not won out sort of a more uh, identitarian identity politics, assimilationist gay community, and another gay community that, that was much more combative in a certain way. Not, not worrying about identity so much as worrying about desire and pleasure. So not only did Dave speak orthogonally to the bigger dynamic between progressives and conservatives, like I suppose you could call it. But he spoke to an, another binary dynamic between the the good gays and the bad gays, depending on which side <laughs> is good or bad. And all of those groups were all attempting to take the power of art away from artists and consider the meaning of art as something that needs to be exposed or that was hidden, that the critic or the intellectual artist would present to the world. So in a certain way, all sides of the political dynamic and the art aesthetic dynamic all were at a step removed from the actual power of art to trying to be gatekeepers. And it was a very insular art world as well. It was very, very small. If you were in the art world, you, you knew a few hundred people and that was it. There was no one else to know. And Dave, having writing this piece, these pieces, came to it from a different angle. First of all, he was in Las Vegas, which was 
not considered a place one could be from as an artist or an art critic. He was writing for me in Los Angeles, which was really outside the mainstream entirely. So Dave wasn't known among this insular group at all. And a group of people would sort of control the narrative. And we, when we published the book, we specifically gave it only to our subscribers, which were some very interesting folks, but a small group that sort of crossed over with the insular art world, but also was a little more vague, I suppose, a vague, not a clear audience. And people were really upset because all of a sudden artists started to talk about somebody that they didn't know about. And when you think you control the narrative, that really pisses people off. So a lot of those people never read the book and or they would first call me and ask for a review copy. And we refuse to give out any review copies. No one gets a review copy, especially the more significant you were, the less you got. (laughs) So we created this sort of angry mob from the very beginning, which was really kind of nice for me because that's what I wanted to do anyway. And I think Dave wanted to do anyway, although it had some ramifications that may not have been as good. And and so the art world started to break apart in a different way. What was the old binary between progressives and conservatives, or even between the good gays and the bad gays, started to become a binary between people who basically were looking to art as a means of redemption, I suppose, or a means of, of joy, and those people who weren't. And that became a new dynamic that really I think affected the arts at that time. And my hope is that we're repeating a culture war today, and I don't think this book will do it, but the same dynamics happening, and I suspect that the same issues are resonating for those of us who feel sort of trapped in between, which I do, these different dynamics. Blake, I'm curious, I wanna see what you can do with this if I put to you the challenge of trying to summarize in brief the argument or arguments of Invisible Dragon. Uh, oh, but I mean, one, I, I think, yeah, we got a great summary just now. I mean, I, I think there's a similar shape maybe in our contemporary culture wars. And I heard a lot of discussion several years ago when the woke stuff started about like a return of PC speech codes, for instance, from the 80s, 90s. But I don't think I've really seen anyone flesh out the parallels of why we're sort of back to this like 1990 moment. It seems very strange. Even the ways that like Trump is like Perot or, some, you know, there, there's a sort of stuckness or impasse to it. I mean, I think the the exciting thing about Hickey is that, you know, he doesn't just make like an argument on behalf of beauty. And, you know, we have people, somehow I'm always like attacking Anastasia Barbich, has that terrible thing at the point about how <laughs> we're taking an aesthetic turn and Garth Greenwell says, who everyone tells me to read because I'm in Bulgaria. And it's- I did too, I think. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. We were, like six people. Told me that I, yeah. I, I Blake, you and I, I mean, are going to do a Garth Greenwell episode at here. some point. Um, yeah. Anyway, even the Bulgarians are telling me to read Greenwell. <laughs> but it's one thing to say beauty is great, art shouldn't be political or moral. But for it to actually be convincing, you have to write beautifully, right? You have to yourself be able to enact the thing and you have to be lost in the plan. I mean, part of what's fun about Hickey is that sometimes the theory really goes off the rails. So, like, the argument ends up not quite congealing. And you don't really notice, and he hasn't noticed, and you're really in the pleasure of the thing. I mean, I think that it, it's truly seductive because it feels like he's sort of seduced by what's happening on the page. And I don't know how you know performed or conscious that is, but... Yeah, I, I think 
I agree with you. The, the the theory can go off the rails. I'm sure Gary would probably agree with you too. I, I, I've always tried to say, I guess, two things at once, which is Dave's arguments, his theoretical arguments were interesting and I think potentially productive and fruitful and sometimes on point. But if possible, it's important to kind of read him in two different ways, maybe in succession, but not at the same time. And one of them is to sort of take the arguments he made about the role of beauty, the history of beauty, the gender of beauty, the ways that it intersects with politics and culture and the art and the sociology of the art world and what he called what was it the therapeutic institution and read it in that way and sort of think about where it was right where it went off the rails but then separately and kind of autonomously just appreciate him as an artist because i think what you're saying is right blake which is when when he was in it he was in it in the same sense one presumes that i'm not a visual artist but one presumes when you're a painter and you're and you're in it and you're you're making choices about what paint to put on the canvas and what goes where and you may have some sort of loose conceptual schema in your head as you do that but the real artist is going by insight and intuition and inspiration and trying to do something that might in some cases be similar to a narrative or an argument, but is fundamentally in its core, not that. And I think that's that's how to most profitably think of Dave. But then also because he's often doing that in the form of arguments, we want to take those seriously as well. I would like to interject something both of you said. In my view, I don't think Dave was giving a theory of beauty at all once the book started to gain an audience outside of my audience. The big mistake was made was that people thought it was a theory of beauty and they thought they were there for the the theory or against the theory. And of course, that's because people coming from an academic background or the kind of people that would end up uh, approaching this. And that's what you did. And it was conceived completely as a work of art, designed as a work of art, understood at first as a work of art. I call it a piece of high camp, and I would stand by that very strongly that Dave, this was a performance, because I know Dave didn't sit down to write a book or to write a theory. This was a, a way of throwing together something like you would throw paint on a canvas, paint on a canvas, I suppose, uh, to try to make something that would resonate in various ways. Dave says that in the book. These are fugitive essays. There's trying to get at something from different angles, but never really getting at it. People don't take that seriously. And that's that's even though we tried really um, hard to make that clear. So it wasn't a theory. And I think if you think of it as theory, it's wrong. He does have one or two small theoretical points, actually, and they're small about what beauty actually is. Uh, One reason that his main point was lost is that we changed the subtitle of the fourth essay in that book, which which originally what now it's on beauty in the therapeutic institution it was originally the subtitle of the magazine was beauties less the beautiful that he wasn't talking about beauty with a capital b at all in fact he was he was trying to get away from that and was talking about beauties as something that are generated anew continually by people and that's a theoretical point i suppose yeah. but it's not a point about beauty <laughs> about what beauty is it doesn't fit into that dynamic going from you know Kant up to present day pseudo-Marxists and Freudians. Well, and it's possible, at least for Hickey, to write beautifully about some particular beauty. You know, it's like, I think the first one that I ever read in college was The, the Diamond as Big as the Ritz and Liberace essay. 
And it didn't convince me to like Liberace, but I mean, it's, it's a, just an amazing performance. And it probably isn't possible to write breathtakingly about the beautiful, right? Or capital B beauty, because what, what would you even be talking about? How could you get yourself worked up in that way? Yeah. And I, I want to, I, I find myself agreeing with everything you said, Gary and Blake, but, but also wanting to be clear about what, in a sense, the argument was, because I think it's hard for people who haven't read Invisible Dragon or don't know the context around it to lock into the conversation unless, unless maybe I'm, one of us is a little bit heavy handed about what, what the book was about in some sense. So the opening essay was this essay about, and I'm not forgetting the title of the essay, was it Enter the Dragon? Yes. Yeah, about it was was it was about the obscenity trial, right? Some of Maplethorpe's photographs, I think this was after he died, maybe, or maybe they were exhibited before he died, but the trial happened after he died, were exhibited in Cincinnati. The curator and the museum were indicted on obscenity charges. There was this big, pretty important free speech trial where the kind of usual suspects and the usual narratives came in. And so the, the the conservatives, you know, from Jesse Helms in the Senate on down to the prosecutor and the, the county prosecutor talked about obscenity. And, and I think there were some some maybe slightly lascivious, vibey pictures of children. But then there were also the kind of pictures of fisting and jaffing and and sex, gay sex. Were, were contaminants of the of sort of public decency and public morals and the public order on the one side. And then on the other side, and this is where Dave kind of argumentatively had his access point, there were these kind of representatives of the art establishment, curators, critics, who came in and defended Maplethorpe, who were not quite willing by Dave's lights to own the fullness of what Maplethorpe was doing. So they defended him on grounds of free expression and First Amendment grounds. And they also defended him on these sort of very abstract grounds of the formal properties of Maplethorpe's photography and what he was doing with light and shadow and how he was making reference to these things in past art history. I think probably all of which were true in a sense, but Dave's argument was that they were missing the point and they were failing an opportunity to actually celebrate what it was that he saw Maplethorpe as celebrating, which were, and maybe you can nuance this, Gary or Blake, which were the actual acts and the actual lives of the people he was depicting. Precisely, and I think Dave says in a variety of ways, very explicitly, in this sense, Jesse Helms the conservative had a better sense of what it was that Robert Maplethorpe was doing than his defenders did, which was he was trying to celebrate lives that in some fundamental and profound way were in fact corrosive to public morals and public decency and public order as they had traditionally been understood. They were a genuine threat to the values that mainstream America held and the defenders of Maplethorpe who refused to sort of celebrate and engage in that threat were really kind of selling him out. Is that fair, Gary? Is that a fair uh, characterization? Yeah, I think that's I think I, I think that's fair. I would expand upon the notion of it of Maplethorpe's image as being a threat. That threat was to both sort of sides of the binary you talked about before. It was a it was an obvious threat to sort of a conservative Jesse Helms political um, 
movement, um, but it's also a threat to the progressive side, to the people who defended Maplethorpe. And the reason it was a threat is that the defense of Maplethorpe that was given based both on formal its formal qualities and its and its and actually its subject matter, but as Dave remarks, that subject matter, gay subject matter, queer subject matters, queer acts, were all over the art world. It wasn't like Maplethorpe did this and no one else did this. It was as common as can be. The difference was that usually it was done as a means to present and symbolize one's political position. And Maplethorpe did it, as you suggested, to actually celebrate or enfranchise in a certain way, different kinds of acts, sexual acts, as well as ways of being in the world. And that was the threat, that if if you're going to celebrate the way people are in the world, there can no longer be any gatekeepers that decide and present it to us. And that was that was the true threat to all sides of the of the both the art in and in and outside the art world. And Dave recognized that. And he was the first person to recognize that, so far as I know, at least in in, in writing. Um, and which is I nice. guess, I mean, the theoretical claim maybe that comes out of the essay is that, you know, I think we're, we're used to a kind of like liberal ethic of tolerance where we tolerate things like religious difference or aesthetic differences because we don't maybe say this out loud, but we think they don't matter very much, right? It's sort of religious differences, well, there is no God, so you know, people can fight among themselves. Okay. Instead, you know, everything can go in the museum and it's not worth getting too upset about. And he really wants to insist that the Maplethorpe, but also the Caravaggio works that he compares them to, I mean, any great artwork is making an argument and we have to take that seriously. So Helms correctly feels attacked by this argument. And it's, you know, there's I think it's the Samuel Goldwyn line, right? If I wanted to send a message, I'd send a telegraph, right? Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a movie if I wanted to send a message. So you know, there is an argument, but also it's beautiful, and it's beautiful, particularly in an, an erotically compelling way. And there is that celebratory, enfranchising, seductive, sexually exciting element, and that those are both there, and they're there for all of the objects in the museum as well. Like maybe we don't feel the claims they make either politically or erotically anymore and we just kind of walk around with a disinterested connoisseurship, but really appreciating them, like really taking them seriously means, you know, being open to both of those dimensions, which are in conflict with each other, right? They, they, I mean, this is maybe part of why there isn't a theory of the beautiful for him, because his theory is that, you know, these are both there, at least if the thing is good and interesting, and they don't quite fit nicely together. Yeah, I think Blake's getting at one of the deeper, the what for me is one of the deeper theoretical points, if there's a theoretical point to, to the invisible dragon, um, which is the way in which works that do something different, I suppose, to put it just vaguely, get incorporated into institutions and lose their power. So now we just genuflect before them. I, In many ways, ironically, just this week, this has now happened with Maplethorpe's images. I mean, it's been happening with Maplethorpe's images. But Art Forum in the print edition this month has the Maplethorpe image of a Jaffe in it <laughs> next to the Caravaggio of the finger in Christ's side and the wound that they can put in the magazine because Maplethorpe has now become canonized, um, although there's lots to criticize in Maplethorpe as well, 
as anything canonized has, but it has now become completely enfranchised. So what Dave was saying happened with Caravaggio has happened with Maplethorpe. And now we can look at the argument and present it without any of the resonance of Frisson that it originally had and it had at the time the original Dragon was 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 published. And I don't Uh, know if this counts as an argument. Maybe it does, but it's also just a kind of it's an orientation of Dave's, which is against against control, right? Because both of the sides in the binary that he was trying to sort of slide through or separate apart want to control in different ways. So the right wing side, the conservative side, one is wants to control somebody like Maplethorpe and the celebration of the things he's depicting by prohibiting it, essentially, by prohibiting it, locking it away from the from view of the good good men and women of America. The other side wants to control it through intermediation and interpretation and a kind of dogmatic politicization. So step in between the viewer, the common man or woman and the photograph and say, this is what it means. This is where it belongs on the walls, on the ice white walls, as Dave said, of the museum. And Dave is against those both of those forms of control and also wanting to point out to those of us who often see those two sides as opposed that they are opposed in some respects but in other respects in terms of their desire to control our experience of beautiful things they are in some respects aligned blake this all feels like it intersects very significantly with a lot of the writing you've been doing about gay literature over the past few decades, I think particularly in the 60s and 70s, and thinking about how it does or doesn't or should or shouldn't exist vis-a-vis different kinds of institutions, whether it's by gay, for gay magazines like Christopher Street or whatever the institutions are. Now, it, does that make sense as a question? I'm sorry, it's not more specific. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think one, you know, when when I reviewed your book on him, you know, I was particularly excited about the Flaubert's parrot thing and, and the way that, you know, he envisions this like America or world of, you know, each of us in these kind of communities of fandom ecstatically enjoying our own uh, parrots that, uh, you know, both like free us up to be in a certain kind of relation to what we enjoy and also put us in a certain kind of community, but free us from, you know, these like oppressive larger institutions that want to control the meanings of these things. And I think maybe this is what he was trying to do in the book that he didn't write, that it sounds like was a real mess. I don't, I guess Gary saw it. I don't know if Dan, you saw it. But like, is, I, you're saying this is the book that Gary mentions in his afterword that he was kind of all set almost. It was the sequel to to Air Guitar. Right, right. And, you know, maybe why this doesn't come together is because, you know, it turns out beauty and our enjoyment of it can't politically save us. And we have, you know, just other unrelated political problems. But yeah, I mean, I think if you think about something like gay or queer or feminist or whatever, like any any group of people who are trying to kind of build a cultural world, I think that that fits really well into his projects. And so, I mean, there's both, at some point we'll have to talk about gay BDSM. So there's a certain element of that that maybe aligns Hickey and Foucault and Hickey and, you know, Maplethorpe and these people. But also I think just the energy in the 70s and 80s of wanting gay bookstores, gay presses, gay galleries distinct spaces of enjoyment. There was also a project, of course, to like have gay studies in the university and to have like, you know, assimilation into 
the dominant institutions, but you know, there was also a lot of interest in having autonomous institutions. And that, and that, I mean, that fits into the logic of what he's doing. I mean, of course, at some point, you know, we have to think about the irony of like, Hickey loves freedom, hates institutions, but it's only because Gary tells him to that there is the book. It's not Hickey alone and his freedom who was able to realize he needs, you know, relations and institutions to be able to do his best work. I would suggest that there are two forms of control that are getting conflated. One is the form of control of an institution or a, or someone of greater power or perceived greater power who controls a narrative. And Hickey was a was clearly against that kind of control. Part of Dave's point also is that control also exists on a micro level between individuals. And he was not against that kind of control. He actually understood that the notion of domination and submission is central to human relationships at their core. And he would engage in that. So as Dave only wrote on commission what artists asked him to write about, he was under their control. That was a game that he thought was the game of art that you play, of dominating and submitting to an editor, to an artist, to a, to a world. And that form of control is not something you can get away from or you want to get away from. Dave, as I always, I think probably goes back to Foucault, that every form of liberation is its own prison. Dave was very conscious of that. So what Blake's calling an irony is actually not so much an irony, but gets at this distinction between the kind of control that has been oppressive, as it were, or, or attempts to be oppressive, and the kind of control that is endemic to art and actually can be celebrated as a part of art or a part of sexuality as well and a part of human relationships in general i have two questions related to that gary or, or one co a comment and a question one is i don't know if you saw the back and forth between blake and me in the comments to my recent post but we were theorizing you as a kind of benevolent but stern daddy figure vis-a-vis -vis dave in the creation I need to read that. <laughs> which obviously, obviously, by what you just said is true, right? I mean, you played the role in that in that dynamic. You played the role, I think, of 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 disciplining Dave into into creation in some sense. And he needed you for that. And then I, I think that the question I have is. I, I take I take your point about the distinction between those two forms of control. What I wonder is for either of you, what is it that creeps in at the institutional level that makes it by Dave's lights or our lights antithetical to the kind of beauty we want to create? Because I think there is a sort of conventional argument about institutions as just the necessary constraints within which we against which we rebel, but within which we we produce the art that we want to produce. So I, you could certainly construct institutions as a form of control that's hospitable to the creation of art as well, and not just these kind of individual relationships. You could. <laughs> <laughs> well, so like the, the Weimar, my Weimar essay. My Weimar, essay in air guitar. Got, got us going back and forth about this. I mean, one, that's absolutely, I think it's like the most beautiful essay about entering the life of the mind. It's, it's really, really wonderful. 
And it, it's great in part because the Volbach figure is this like, you know, queenie, queer, weird, you know, outsider figure who like is also very stern and, and wasp position. Like, you know, there's, there's this like interesting, you know, sort of Tim Gunn energy by which he like you know, brings <laughs> Dave into love, thinking. Love Tim Gunn. That's an interesting figure, right? His like queerness or sissiness is not warm and benevolent. It's kind of cold and withholding. And that's what excites Hickey. And, but Volbach preaches to Hickey, and then Hickey preaches in other essays that, like, it's the market that's enfranchising. It's this decadence of Weimar that is exciting. And you know, the institutions are bad, but the market is where you can have this sort of freedom to be playing around in this way. But of course, Volbach is able to have this authority because they're in the classroom. So there is the institution behind him. So, I mean, for all the ways that I'm resistant to, like, capital Q queer, like, politics, I love lowercase q queering distinctions. So, I mean, this is something in, in Foucault's work, this is something in, in, in Hickey's. I, I totally am sympathetic with you know, institutional power bad, and then there's a lot of pleasure in you know, everyday dominance and submission. But I, I don't think they can be neatly separated because someone like Volbach is, is right at that juncture. Yeah. I think that these, what I call two kinds of control, aren't completely separate. And maybe one thing Dave did not appreciate or did not come out enough in the work is how those forms of control actually interact, or presuming that you could have one without the other. I think he, if he was if he was here, I think he'd, he'd agree immediately to that. To that. So the binary, that binary is also a false binary, as it were. But I did want to mention one particular part of this micro the micro part of control that Dave really emphasized, which has to do specifically with beauty. To the extent that I understand a definition, Dave giving a definition of what beauty is, what he was talking about was the ability of objects, or usually, to produce pleasure in a viewer against the viewer's will or involuntarily. Mm. That's a form of control that an object has over us. Now, art's often talked about and beauty's often talked about as having political, as being political. For Dave, that's not a political thing. It's not political. That's what art does, is it produces pleasure in me if it's if some art produces pleasure in me, whether I want it to or not, it gives me pleasure. And then once it does that, that can have political ramifications. Because right. what is it that produces pleasure? There's a way in which the artwork controls you involuntarily. And that's the that's the essence of what I think of as queer power. But that's the essence of the kind of control Dave was defending. And maybe that can only exist in relationship to institutions. That could be true. But it doesn't matter. Institutions usually try to keep that power but, away. Right. I mean, this this is you it was so right to put the Retchy review in there and then and then to, you know, use uh, the quote from that about like on the back, love me, admire me, bow down before me. And this is something like Maybe I mean, for what I am with the most important that's part. Right. That's right. <laughs> so look after all. You know, me I guess part of what's exciting about Hickey is uh, there may be other straight guys who've thought about this, but for me, this is a very, like, I, I, I don't, I've never written this term, capital B, bottom, capital T theory, but I have a sort of mental list of, of bottom theorists, so Foucault, Leo Bersani, Tim Dean, who are really interested in what they call like the, the shattering, the self-shattering dimension of enjoyment. And the Hickey there is like so on to what feels 
not like sublime or pleasant about encountering something beautiful, but really humiliating. And there, there is enfranchisement at one moment, but maybe the, the first moment is also disempowering or being overthrown. So, I mean, our, our relationship to the beautiful is both like, there is a kind of permission that's granted that feels very exciting and capacitating, but there's also, you know, it's like the end of the, the Rilke poem, like, you know, you must change your life. Like suddenly you've been knocked over by this thing and, you know, you have to you pay, pay the hooker or, you know, you have to you know do something else. And yeah, I, I don't know like who, who at that time was like pointing us not just to like the importance of beauty, but to this affective dimension of it, right? That it's not, that the beautiful isn't pleasant. Mm. Well, I don't think Dave thought the beautiful is pleasant. I think you're, you're getting exactly at what he was at. Now that wasn't always understood because people thought this was about the beautiful and they were for or against it. But I think it was much more, Dave was much more attuned to what you're talking about. I'm interested, there's something you had written about the distinction between art being seductive and art being shattering, which you just brought up. I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that notion. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I may mangle you know, this distinction, but there's this sort of run of gay male queer theory in the 90s and 2000s where you people like Bersani, Dean, Lee Edelman are drawn on Lacan and, and make a distinction between there's the world of like desire, fantasy, pleasure, where you know, I know what I like and I go get it and I, you know, it makes me feel nice. Or I hope I get this thing that I will enjoy. And then there are the forms of enjoyment that Lacan talks about as jouissance and that Bersani and some people following him translate as, as uh, shattering, where I am getting a kind of pleasure that I don't find pleasurable, right? So I'm both very powerfully drawn to the thing, but it also is really not in alignment with my conception of myself. It's not in alignment with what I think is good or even what feels good to me consciously. And I mean, I think th this is the dimension of sexuality in general that is like queer or uncanny or, you know, not tolerable to us knowingly as pleasure. And yeah, I guess what, what's, what I hadn't realized about Hickey is that like, you know, that even from this really early essay on Retchy, that like he's so clued into that. Right. And I, I imagine, I don't know what in his PhD he would have read for theory, but like, you know, this is before he comes into contact with Foucault, but he's he's already there. Yeah. I I see that in the Retchy piece as well. I'm not I'm not very familiar myself with the ins and outs of queer theory, but I think that, that that what you're describing as part of queer theory is definitely what Dave was intuitively interested in, whether he got, I don't think he got it from theory. I think he got it from his life. And I think it was from a actually an early life that I consider very queer, where he was, was interested in beauty in Texas in the 1950s, which have been very weird for a macho kid. I think that gave him an, a, a personal insight into this notion of pleasure being something that's actually disturbing in a certain way. It's also the reason why pleasure and art itself takes us out of ourselves. One of the problems with thinking of queer as an identity as opposed to a way of being in the world is it thinks that it's something we are. And the whole notion of art producing a pleasureness that we didn't know it would do or doing involuntarily means that art is a way in which we are taken out of ourselves 
It's not we're not expressing ourselves, but we can become something different, or we are something different, or we're shattered. It's a much is the word that I think is is much even is much better. I think that was central to Foucault's Foucault himself in his later work, which was often no one ever really got correctly, um, but it was also uh, central to what Dave was saying, and I not taken from Foucault, but they came to the same viewpoint. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, kind of biographically for Foucault. I think a lot of his sense of both the power to transform oneself that comes out of pleasure and the danger in that, that that's not straightforwardly good, comes out of, you know, his experiences of, of mental illness, of many suicide attempts. Um, his boyfriend in his 20s was an alcoholic who ended up drinking himself to death. So, you know, he's he's not someone, he's often, I think, misread as just like celebrating limit experiences, but he has a really clear sense that like, these could also kill you. I think could totally fuck you up. In your biography, Dan, you're like, I think you know, very like respectful and gingerly about you know Hickey's excesses. But I mean, it seems like his sense that beauty could kill you or you know open you up in a wrong way. You know, there, there's a sexual aspect, and there's also a sort of experience of drugs that's coming out of that, right? Yeah, and I, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think of whether. I thought about that at all when I was writing the book, and I don't want to give myself more credit than than I deserve because I think I was kind of moving forward, I, not blindly, but just pretty intuitively. I thought of it not quite in those terms. I think I thought of it in a sort of just relatively crude sense as somebody who had an enormous amount of pain in, in, in his existence. So Gary's right. He did have this kind of, in a sense, bohemian childhood with uh, his mother, an artist, his father, a musician. A lot of their friends were artists and musicians. He also had a really traumatic childhood, even before his father killed himself at the age of 16. It was just a, you know, it was a dysfunctional home, enormous amount of arguing. I think his father was literally raised in an orphanage. His mother, I think, was raised by wolves. Parents who had no idea how to parent, had no particular interest in parenting, though they had three kids nonetheless, were fighting all the time. There was a lot of escape for Dave and escape to art and culture. And then subsequent to that, after he went out on his own, and he really did go out on his own really around the age of like 15 or 16 in some fundamental sense, just out there in the world seeking pleasures, but also dealing with the consequences of of seeking them in a sort of way unconstrained by a real internal sense of control and groundedness and coming pretty close to death a few times. And I think existing in despair any number of times. I was about to say before he sort of got his shit together in the the late 80s, early 90s. But I mean, that was a <laughs> in the context of Gary's magazine and his job at UNLV and his marriage to Libby. But even that was a pretty tenuous getting his shit together by sort of conventional bourgeois standards. I do have a question. I want to shift course a little bit just to get us closer to sort of where we are now. Gary, when you were deciding what to do about this 30th anniversary edition. As I said before, you made a few key decisions that made it more than the typical anniversary of edition of a book, which usually just has a new intro or forward or something like that. So when did you start thinking about this? How did you conceptualize it? How did you end up where we are with this book? This book originally was formulated while Dave was still alive. And um, I had a sense, Chicago had had, I, we licensed the book to the University of Chicago for a second edition in the 2000s. I pretend that one doesn't exist, but anyway, yeah. It's, there are great things to it and things that are not so great. Yeah. Like every book. And 
I was concerned about the book just being languishing in libraries and not having any more of a life, except maybe in its, for some few academics. So I really believed we needed a 30th anniversary edition. Uh, to, also, I saw the culture wars that were happening as kind of repeating things in the 90s, and I wanted to explore that myself, try to understand that myself. I asked Dave what he wanted, and he said, do an interview with me. He wanted me to interview him. I'm a terrible interviewer, so I was worried about that. So in some ways, it's good that it come about. Dave, by the um, way, at least at but, the point where I met him, was also a terrible interviewee. That uh-huh. may not have been true 10 or 15 or 20 years earlier when he was at the height of his powers, but but 80-year-old Dave was a was it was a shitty interview. <laughs> well, I've I've read great interviews with him. I've never interviewed him. So I have I'm... two, but they were they were from. They were written. <laughs> they yeah they were written and they were from a long time ago. It was very yes. So I guess if you could imagine a scenario where there was a written interview and then maybe it was revised, but again, I'm not sure he had the powers at that point in his life to sort of revise it in the way that would have been no. needed. So, no. Sorry. So after Dave passed. I was really at a loss of what to do. There were three options. One was just to let the book languish, which is sort of what everyone wanted it to do. And that really uh, upset me. And it was really my husband who convinced me that I have to take the book over and do something with it. The obvious thing to do was to do what's always done in an anniversary issue, which isn't just have a new forward written, but to try to find the most the biggest name you could, biggest literary name, to tell people what a cool book this is, uh, put a gold stamp on it and send it into the world. And that's what a big publisher would do. And I was very resistant to that for a few reasons, the most important of which is that that would canonize the book and do the exact thing with the book, which I think of as a work of art yeah. that Dave thought should not be done or, or ultimately should be delayed as long as possible to any work. So I rejected that out of hand, and I decided that if I were to do something, I need to kind of reimagine it, uh, give it a new narrative, change it, which is has its risks because people already want to canonize and genuflect before something. So to do that, I went back and I read. I didn't know quite how to do that. So I sort of read through everything I could find that Dave wrote, um, much of it from your own dance, your own research, and then some other pieces. Like I went to, li- went to like libraries and found stuff on microfiche and stuff, which I haven't done for since the '90s. So that was fun. And I, I just decided that I'm going to collect some some uncollected essays with it and trying to figure out which ones was interesting. I went through 14 different. We counted wait, the 14 different books we went through till we arrived at this. Uh, much cleaner one than than the ones that I originally wanted to do. To really intersperse the essays, so we have five new essays that are dispersed with the original four, shuffled with the original four, to sort of create a new narrative, because the original essays weren't written as a as a piece anyway. They were so it made sense to do that. So that was a way in which I wanted to reimagine the book. And then in exploring my own relationship with Dave, what I think of as a very queer relationship with Dave was a way to reimagine it as well and get back to one of the primary insights that I've had about the book, which is that the book was successful at its time. The original book was successful at its time because of the AIDS plague. When Blake talked earlier about pleasure being dangerous and this sort of this theoretical notion, well, pleasure and beauty were dangerous in the early 90s and my in my life that's affected me my entire life there is a fear of death 
immediate that, that's always been talked about theoretically, you know, going back probably before Freud, but at least to that, but was felt by people who were who were gay at that time. And Dave was talking about that not as a gay man, but just from his own wacky, drugged out experiences earlier. So because he was doing that, people saw that in this without no one's ever really realized that. That the reason beauty was denigrated at that time is because beauty was a gay thing. Gay people are interested in superficial appearances and all the things Dave celebrates. And that came with death. So even gay theorists, many gay theorists, were anti-beauty in that sense because beauty is the seductive thing that just is dangerous or the media uses to push you down. So that became the central focus of this book was to try to understand, for me, how his issues about beauty struck a chord, which was a surprise, precisely because they hit at the relationship between beauty and danger and pleasure and danger that people were living, that I was living, and that Dave had lived before AIDS. So that's how the book came about. You looked like you were going to say something, Blake. Oh, it just, I mean, it just occurred to me, right, that like part of what's gay or queer about Hickey yeah, is the, the sense of this connection that he arrives at by his own means of the relationship between you know, beauty and danger, beauty and death, beauty and risk to the self, and also his sense of the that also being related to the most apparently frivolous, kind of glittery, glitzy Las Vegas thing. I think there, there's a way where maybe it has become easier to accept Maplethorpe and Caravaggio, or, you know, okay, the death drive that has a certain now academic prestige and career. But that also that, that that and Siegfried and Roy are related to each other, which they are, of course, in many gay men's taste, actually, right? <laughs> like, I both love the Andy Warhol shoe paintings and also some fist-fucking video, but that they're not just related by biographically someone's sensibility, but that there's really something importantly connecting the two. I mean, that's part of what's excitingly gay about him. Well, and I think to layer on top of that, Blake, and I think this is a point you were arguing in your recent post on this there's also an extra charge i think in layering that on top of what is appealingly straight about dave so unless we're going to queer everything that's straight and I'm, i'm fine with that in general but i think there were aspects of dave that were just kind of straight in the conventional sense, but but straight and and erotic in a traditionally straight right. So sense. I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of ways where like I mean, nothing is gayer than straight guys at an Iron Maiden concert. Or, <laughs> right. least, what what better way to be closeted than to, <laughs> to be acting in this really gay heavy metal way, right? Which is so theatrical and campy. Like there, there there's a certain like weird common ground between like a very sort of straight male camp. And uh, the gay sensibility. I would say we're. I would say we're not where you have always been a homosocial culture, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, a same-sex culture, and so that's what Blake's getting at. Dave was as straight as can be in so many respects. When I talked first, talked to Whit, uh, Libby, his widow, about AIDS and how the what it meant to me in relationship with Dave, um, she said she she never heard Dave talk about. AIDS or anyone who died of AIDS, that mm. he was he was really divorced from it, um, and I had never heard him either talk about it. And even though I tried to talk to Dave during his life about things that would have connected these things together, he resisted it. 
resisted talking about it. I never talked to me about Foucault, even though at the time in the 90s, when I had met Foucault when I was an uh, undergrad at Berkeley, his last lectures sort of changed my life in a certain respect. And then I came across Dave and it was like, oh, I, I quit academia and I said, I can resuscitate this and Dave refused to engage with me about it for reasons I don't understand. Then when what was a big shock recently, this is probably cut from the podcast, but it's just I just have to say it because it tore me apart in doing this book, is when I when I read the piece on Retchi, on John Retchi, this book on numbers about a, a gay prostitute who's interested in quantity, not quality, which is very Dave. Um it it blew my mind because I had John Retchi write for me and I went back a couple times in the 90s and John and Dave's pieces were printed next to each other and the magazine it was a tiny magazine there were only four essays and Dave never mentioned a thing to me about it I had no idea this Retchi thing existed and John who I delivered the magazine to, he was living here and he's, he's still in LA now. I delivered the magazine, didn't say anything about it. And it was just, and, and when I discovered this essay on Retchi, that to me is, has everything Dave ever wanted to say for his life that he said it in the, in the 60s. It just, it, it just is mind boggling to me that they both, they both, I don't know what they thought if Retchi remembers or knew that essay. It was a kind of important essays. It was pretty stonewall, <laughs> defending his work against uh, against uh, New York establishment homophobia. So I don't know. It's just an aside, but I just it's it was the most powerful <laughs> part of redoing this book was that discovery and that evasion. Really, uh, by by one, if you can speculate, I mean, what's up with that? <laughs> That's weird. And and so I mean, how would he even have known? Did straight people know who Reggie was in the late sixties? Yeah. Like, well, how how did he know that? How I think he... through Larry McMurtry, who was also who was friends with Dave, and Larry was defending Reggie as well. Now, mm-hmm. Reggie, straight people knew Reggie because of City of Night, which was a bestseller, and Numbers was the second book that Reggie wrote that was panned because the first book was a bestseller, like outside the establishment. It was actually a bestseller book. And now, since it was a bestseller, the literary establishment had to weigh in on Retchi when his second book came out. Okay. Okay. Um, so they did, and you end up with just it was completely rejected, except for McMurtry. And then I think that that's my speculation of how Dave came to it was from McMurtry, who was much more of an influence on Dave than people. I don't think this is an answer at all to your question of what's up with that Dave's evasions, but I'm curious, Gary, about your personal relationship to him, I guess, from the perspective of mine, which was at the very end of his life and not of the intensity that yours obviously was. And I've tried to articulate to myself who Dave was to me personally. This was primarily during the pandemic where we were just talking on the phone a lot. I made one visit out to see him in Santa Fe, see him in Libya on Santa Fe. And I experienced him and experience him as this very warm, benevolent presence in my life and, and he's not the first older man who's served in this role for me, but there was a limit on it. And there was a rejection of a certain kind of intimacy from him. There was this kind of, he saw me in a sense, he was benevolent towards me. He genuinely wanted good things for me, but he was not going to open himself up to me, nor invite me to open myself up to him. And I wonder a few things. Why is that relationship appealing to me? Maybe that's, maybe there's a safety in the denial of intimacy 
but also why is there a power why is there a power to that kind of withholding but genuine benevolence and i wondered in your relationship you talked about all these things that he didn't talk to you about and you know at a baseline my assumption is i bet there's like things dave didn't talk to anybody about because he was in denial about him because his brain moved in these sort of i think in these sort of currents around the things that were too fraught or painful for him to think about and he had this just sort of bizarre relationship to introspection and things like that where there were there's an incredible sensitivity to him and then also an incredible resistance to into sort of normally what we think of as as introspection and the processing of one's pain and trauma i didn't have a very intimate relationship with deva on that level either i do think people had did I mean, you have to talk to his girlfriend's wives to women, them, right? Like, to, to women, to women. Yeah. but also his students. Yeah, um, friends with some of Dave's students, and they had very close relationships with Dave. Maybe because of the power dynamic that's built into a student-teacher relationship, but he maintained relationships with many of them after school. Still, I mean, you met many at a garden party. Yeah. came out. There was a love that people had the people had for Dave when he was in a professional relationship with someone as he was with me there was a ways in which I think intellectually there's a great intimacy between us even though the things that weren't talked about but personally even though I spoke to him literally every day for a few years every morning just about shit not about you know not about just what our problems are like there, there still was always a great distance and I think that whether that was always in his life with everyone, I'm not sure. I think Dave very much was trying to get away from himself, the way, which is part of what I'm describing. He thinks art has the power to allow us to do is to get away from ourselves, not to have an identity, but to 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 step outside ourselves. Um, and so I think that was his interest in art. And I think that came out of the relationship. And I know you can talk to my husband about it, but that's how I am as well, is like lack of intimacy. And, you know, <laughs> you could talk to my wife as well. You know, I don't know. Like, you seem a little more open, less uh, less scaled over oh, than Gary and me, but no, 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 no okay. It's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, I was thinking, I, these seem like very opposite characters, maybe, but some, maybe this is a non starter. But you know, I'm thinking about Sontag, who, like, her. Affect is totally different. The things that she likes are really different, although she writes you know, about camp in the 60s. But she's also someone who, in this kind of high modernist way, art is impersonal and is to get us out of ourselves. And of course, you know, there's no one who is more self-centered than Sontag, but also that those claims about what art is doing are really transparently related to, you know, someone who wants to protect themselves and is a bit fragile and vulnerable. And you know, the the aesthetic is a way to get out of that and not have to be directly in some like the anyone who's telling us you know the therapeutic institution can't be trusted therapy mm, yeah. you know there, there's clearly some some hurt that's being protected yeah. that that could be that could be really one of the limitations of dave as a critic and as a person is that maybe what he's talking about is just true for some of us um it's just true for Sontag Although, or, I mean or imagine whatever. he had gone to therapy and then he didn't write the book I mean that would be terrible we're, we're obviously better for him <laughs> I wanted him to go to therapy after air guitar I think you might be right like maybe he needed to not be therapized for invisible dragon and air guitar but I given that he didn't write a great book after that 
that's when I, for a variety of reasons, would have wanted him to do his. And so his does this exist there. somewhere like King manuscript? Like in, in 50 years, will someone get to, you know, publish the annotated, unfinished? Uh... Isn't some of it in Pirates and Farmers or some of it in Perfect Wave, Gary? In Are some... you talking about Pagan America? Well, yeah. whatever the book you were going to put out was. <laughs> I thought I thought there were essays that were republished that ended up being collected in Perfect Wave. And then. So Dave, after the one Aaron, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. What's that? Dave after air guitar. What we're talking Dave about. after air guitar. I thought some of that was in Perfect Wave, and then some of it was what you republished. Now, in, again, Dave in, wrote essays, yeah. not books. I think the reason air guitar, for me, holds together as a book is that the vast majority of those essays were written for the same place, or for my magazine, and with the same power dominant submission playoff that Dave and I had that was in those essays, they, they were of a piece because that same dynamic was in, with, with was with each piece. So it holds together as this, as this, what for me is a very beautiful, his most beautiful collection. When that was finished, Dave continued to write it in this for me for a number of, for a few years until 2000. And, but he started to get, Dave had a very difficult time saying no to anybody, to me or to anybody else. He couldn't say no. Part of it is sort of, he was a gig person. So if he says no, who knows if he'll get an SX gig. My husband's an actor. I deal with that every day as well. It's like, they'll never work again. That's true. So Dave couldn't say no. And after the success of that book, he was getting calls continually. So he started to be writing just nonstop. So many pieces. And I keep discovering to this day, this week, I spent another piece I never knew he had written. Little pieces for anybody who asked. Somebody, he'd say no if he really hated the person, but otherwise, there was no, there was never a no. highly variable quality because I've seen a lot. It's, of those. A, it's a problematic thing because he was writing quickly and then and each one was a different dynamic and no one edited. It. Also, at that time, nobody would edit him yeah. because it was too big, so you had to just sort of take it and say how wonderful it is because they wanted his name on on everything. So what happened? It's just I want to just finish the narrative. Yeah. Uh, Dave and I had planned right after Air Guitars, we're going to do another book. And it was going, and he was going to be working on it with these essays, but he burnt out and couldn't do it. And the book I was going to do with him was going to be, we actually, it was all done. We had, I believe, 12 essays. And then I said, you need to write four more. We need 16. And you can do that quarterly as opposed to every issue, which she was doing four times in the next year. And we'll be out with it in 2001. And so it was almost done. 2001, he got the MacArthur and then he really exploded. And then not only did little artists want him to write about, but all the magazines. So he canceled the book. The essays from that book, he then said, I don't want to longer do that book. He, he, he was starting to worry about his legacy. He went to Chicago, University of Chicago, to Susan Bielstein, who's been a big supportive, supporter of Dave throughout for, for decades now, and says, I want to do this book that he had already been under a contract with me to do with the University of Chicago. Here are the essays, and I need to write a few more. And then he didn't write them. Yeah. So that book came out in 2017. Chicago waited 15 years supposed to be out that two, in two years, right after the MacArthur. And many of those first 12 essays, or few of them, I should say, are in perfect wave and a few of them just were cut out and he added new ones. So the book 
uh, was to be called Connoisseur Waves that, that I was to produce with him. It's now called Perfect Wave, which includes some of those essays that he had written for me with a bunch of other wonderful pieces that he wrote over the 2000s. So that's that story. I can tell you about the pagan America too, but that's when you talked about what, what was in that book. Does that make sense? Yeah. Would you also tell us about Pagan America? I'm really curious. Okay. Pagan America. So he started becoming even more popular and famous after MacArthur. So he kept putting Chicago off. Pagan America really was the same book. Is that right? Yeah. I have a little, I have a passage in my book about Pagan America and it's kind of ghostly existence whereas i'm not sure if this is still the case but at one point if you googled it you could even find like university of chicago press or whatever like a page for it you know a sort right. of ghostly yeah, yeah. Oh, amazon yeah. or barnes yeah. and noble was, i think simon and schuster so he got the okay it's almost like it almost suggests that it does exist and it's just inaccessible or something like it that. was repackaging it's I think I think it came about after he wrote the Vanity Fair piece on Disney World, his visit to Disney World, which was kind of a nowadays, I don't know if you could print it, but it was a kind of an interesting piece for Dave. So it was that sort of a different literary level, which Dave always aspired to be accepted by in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly. So he could go to a large publisher, and of course they were game for it. He was this MacArthur guy. So he's tried to put in it a number of the essays that were going into the Chicago book, originally in my book, and started to create, I have very rough draft, and I don't know if I could send it around, but started to create like links between the essays. So they pretend to be a book. So there would be like this personal passage that would connect the essays together. I don't know the details, and Gary Morris, Dave's quasi- agent or um, might know more of this. No, what I did want to say is, and I think also I he had this collection, Pirates and Farmers, that that was mostly consisting of columns he wrote. I forget if it was Art Form or Art in America over the period of a year or two. And there's one or two things in there that have this pagan America frame as well. So I think that's in the mix. Also, I would say I've said this before, which is in a sense, there's no Dave Hickey without Gary Kornblau because... Dave Hickey, as we as we know him, and I don't just mean as a brand or a persona or a name, but as as a source of influence, really only exists because of Invisible Dragon and Air Guitar. And Invisible Dragon and Air Guitar only exist because Gary was there to play the benevolent, stern, queer queen, sissy daddy to Dave's whatever it is that Dave did. And also, and I, and I, and that is a little bit underselling your role, Gary, because you understand how books should look and feel. So you're an extraordinary publisher in that sense, your sense of taste and what constitutes cool. And the new book is very beautiful in a totally different way from Invisible Dragon and a different way from Air Guitar. But Dave just doesn't exist without, I think, you editing him, you harassing him, and you packaging him in all of these ways to produce these objects that were able to exert this influence. It's not that he wouldn't have been known in some sense if he was publishing these individual essays, but without their sort of distillation configuration into these books, he just he just doesn't have the influence that he does. I mean, I, I think that's almost inarguable. Well, I, I would argue with that. I know I, you I, would, but you're wrong. I, not, not out of humility, because I, I believe there's a truth to what you're saying, and then there's not, not a truth. Dave would not exist were it not for Mary Jane Cook and Crook and Marshall Chapman and Susan Freudheim and Levy Lumpkin. It's Agreed. Agreed. all friends and wives that 
allowed him to maybe enable them. I don't know, <laughs> um, but it allowed him to survive. Yeah. And that is first and foremost how Dave got through the world was probably through loving them and torturing them is my fantasy, but I don't know. Can't, I can't imagine living with Dave. The truth in what you're saying is that the coherence of what the, the things that Dave wrote of Invisible Dragon and Air Guitar would not exist without me. And I don't think he would have had the success without that. But Dave would have written and would have continued to write his entire life every day, whatever there was, whoever was around. Dave wrote as in a power dynamic with his editor or whether who asked him. And after Dave was successful, there was no equality of power dynamic anymore. Dave was the master and people yeah. wanted his name. So you no longer had that tension that existed between me and Dave. But that's purely a matter of circumstance that I was there at that time. I mean, it, obviously, it's I was interested in it. But, you know, and I think I knew what kind of books needed to be done. And also it was the 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 circumstance that I was not in the publishing world. I was not in New York. But we forget today how publishing much more, people think today, but much more than today, and the art world specifically, was just New York. Yeah. And if you weren't there, you did not exist. And I published and Dave published in a way, in a vacuum of not existing in that world. And it's because of that outsiderness, although I don't believe in outsiderness, but it's because we were seriously outside the intellectual community and had no desire to really be part of it in the work that it could strike the kind of chord that it did. So there was a lot of circumstance behind the success. Although I appreciate you're saying he wouldn't exist without me. I, I think that's that's a over, that's, I, I don't like saying it that way. I think it's an overstatement. And I'm you not know, a person, so I would be happy to take that. <laughs> there's, there's like the Foucauldian point, right? I mean, he has some formula of like, what's the, what's the least amount of power that can be exercised on me that lets me do the things that I need to do or like become who I want to be. And so he has these models of, you know, the, the philosopher and the student or the BDSM master. And, you know, you need to like find this right kind of relationship. You have to be in a culture where those resources are available. And I mean, Dan, you've been doing a lot of thinking. I, I don't know if it comes out of thinking about Dave originally, but like thinking about what's the sweet spot where someone is doing their best work. Yeah. Right. And you don't do your best work when you're obscure and drifting and disconnected, but you also maybe don't do it when they're giving you the big checks and not saying no to you. And I mean, this is something that maybe kind of slips out in Hickey's theorizing because he's, you know, playing the market against the institution. But this just right kind of productive relationship where you need other people, you maybe need someone telling you what to do and exercising some control over you. And maybe even within that, you have to be really intimate with them. So Leo Bersani has this line to quote him again about in an essay on cruising about impersonal intimacy, these transformative relationships, like with the aesthetic, exercise a lot of power, but can can also be, you know, there can be something that's guarded. You can totally engage yourself because only it's it's you know for a short amount of time, or it's just, it's just in this particular place, or you'll only know me in this way. And that way I can give you power over me to make me the person that I want to be. Wow. Um, Beautiful. And yeah, I, well, you know, that line in personal intimacy, right? I mean, that is also describing that some version of what I was describing in my relationship vis-a-vis -vis Dave and some other figures in my life who I think have been very beneficial 
to me. Yeah, I don't know why. You're right. I've been thinking about that question of under what circumstances do we do our best work? I was thinking more broadly, why is it that there are certain, I mean, this is a question I have no answer to, but why Why are there certain periods in in the history of various cultures when there's an enormous kind of, you know, profusion of, of extraordinary work, of beautiful work? And I think any effort like any effort to pin that down is going to fail, right? It's going to fail fundamentally. I mean, Dave had this argument about the role of the market that maybe you could see some validity to it in the period that he was really talking about, which wasn't even really when he was writing. It was when he was coming of age in the 60s and 70s when there was a kind of loose network of galleries that were selling for-profit art that were sort of functioning in a kind of in a productive way. But by the time I think Dave was even writing, and certainly by this point, when you look at the role of the market in the art world, I don't think anybody, including Dave, would say that it bears any similarity whatsoever to this sort of dynamic, fertile sort of loam in which good art can grow. But I think to your point, Blake, there is some very complicated set of constraints and permissiveness and freedom and uh, and coercion that is probably ideal for the cultivation of art. I guess a question, and I have no idea what that is. It's just just like, that's a very vague statement. It's just, I think there's something in the way that you're describing it. I, I think one question, I maybe the question I kind of wanted to try and end on, and I don't know precisely how to get into it, is Dave's book, Invisible Dragon, was such a bomb dropped into the culture in 1993. It's not that it changed everything, but it obviously had this sort of really extraordinary effect on people, the people who were receptive to it, but the, the in 1993, and we've talked a lot about what the conditions were in 1993, and I want to think about Invisible Dragon in 2023, and I guess start off by saying two things. One is, it still seems immensely relevant. So all of the ways in which as I think you put it, Blake, 2023 kind of rhymes with 1993 in terms of political correctness and culture war stuff and so on. So on the one hand, it's it hasn't really aged that much. On the other hand, I don't think any of us think that the 30th anniversary edition of Invisible Dragon is going to have the influence or land with the shock that the 1993 edition has. And the question is less, why is that the case? then what is the case of where we are now? Like, what what is the sort of constellation of forces? Why do we feel like we're back in that world of excessive repression and coercion and control that we had escaped at some point by the, the end of the 90s or something like that? I have one comment on that, though it's, though it's not a concluding comment. One thing that's that's forgotten about the original, the 1993 Invisible Dragon. It was written in the midst of a recession. And actually there was a resurgence at those, those during just a few brief years from 91 or so to 1990 to 1995 or so, where there was a resurgence of small little galleries opening, mm -hmm. especially outside New York, because the institutions had collapsed sort of dramatically after the go-go 80s. So there was this period where what Dave was saying was actually ringing true in a certain way. Mm. To relate that to today, we're still in the midst of this gilded age where with the financialization of art and whatnot. And so to some extent, it appears as if the Invisible Dragon doesn't fit at all because people accuse it of defending the market, accuse yeah. it, of defending the market against against the therapeutic institution. And now we know that the market has won out. But this is now, now it's all a big market. 
And what I state actually in just a footnote of my afterward, because I didn't want the afterward to be theoretical, <laughs> is that actually that may have it exactly opposite. I think today, just like then and in the 80s, people were complaining about the market. Today, people are complaining about the market, but what's not completely understood is the market is the therapeutic institution today. We have not been taken over by the market. We've been taken over by an ideology of the therapeutic institution that the market took, and it's the same thing now. There's only, there isn't this difference between the market and the therapeutic institution. There's only the therapeutic institution. The museums are all involved in it, and it's one big scheme. So to me, and one of the reasons behind this book is that actually the dynamic the Invisible Dragon was talking about has come true. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't seen then. And I think somebody today, I'll be the only one to state it here, will see that now. It won't have the impact it had. Maybe if we go into another recession, the, I mean, I hope is that there'll be some resurgence of Dave's thoughts. I don't know if I hope for a recession, although in some ways I do, because I'm in a privileged enough position to not suffer dramatically from it. So that's why. Um, maybe. I don't know. Um, you so, don't need to check your privilege on this podcast. Gary. So today, yeah, <laughs> probably that's really the now get now I've got canceled from this podcast. It strikes me that there's that that the dynamic we're living in today really is just an extension of the dynamic of the '90s, although it's not seen that way. So there's there's really is a very strong rhyme between the culture today and then, almost on a hyper level. But that could be my bias. I don't know. Dan, you, you must agree, because this is what I take to be your argument about the blob in, in your book. And then I guess you, what, what sucks about this being true is that, I mean, I take it, I mean, this was true for Sontag in the 60s, I think this is true for Hickey in the 90s, that at, at the time there felt something really capacitating about saying, look at popular culture, look at the market, they're very exciting. And I don't, I don't know, I, I couldn't put a year to it when that gesture loses its force because the the market and the institutions have becomes it, it it's also homogenized that it no longer feels possible to reach into some alternate social space and say no but this scene is really exciting this the way yeah. they're doing it here is really different and right i guess the what would be good is if you know the 30th anniversary edition can get people to think about how much deeper the problem is and, and where can we take our critical enthusiasm now that would be useful in addressing it. I mean, you know, the, the worry would be, you know, I haven't read, but I saw like Compact Magazine as a review of the, the 30, maybe, maybe you have read, Dan, uh, but, you know, I worry that- the, I haven't been willing to pay for a subscription yet. So right, I, that's why I haven't- that's why or something like that. Uh, yeah. Because that's what's in Compact Magazine? There's a review of the um, books. There is? And yeah. I, I take it just from the first couple of paragraphs that the argument is like, you know, oh, the, the woke people are so terrible. Right. And look, you know, Dave Hickey told us all about it. And I mean, those people don't know about art. They, you know, they, know, they don't know art from their asshole. It didn't look uh, like it was, it would look like it was going to be a rave review, but from a not particularly sophisticated space. Uh, so about which we would all have mixed feelings based on the first hundred words. <laughs> Before the paywall kicked in. <laughs> someone, someone will pay for it eventually. And then we'll yeah. find out. Actually, I, I, I haven't I haven't followed like, how the reviews have been. Before we get into that, I just want to follow on what you were saying, Blake, because I think you're right. How did you put it? Where, where we should take our sort of critical energies when the blob has subsumed everything, when the distinction between the market and the therapeutic institution has collapsed, when everything has become the therapeutic institution, 
where do we go? And I guess maybe that ties in a little bit to what we were talking about a little bit before, Blake, which is like under what conditions do we produce, do we, can we produce good work? And I, I feel like we're all kind of looking around for that and trying to figure that out because we do feel profoundly stuck. Like there's a there's a jealousy I feel about even being able to sort of get your piece rejected because you insisted on the photograph being included of, you know, of of the guy sticking his pinky into his penis hole and 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 the jealousy of the, you know, the I forget what county it is that but Cincinnati is in, but the 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 county DA coming down on the exhibition of Maplethorpe's exhibition, the idea that you could do something that was outside of the establishment that was threatening, sufficiently threatening to it. I mean, I don't really want to live in, you know, some oppressive culture, but it it's is an old man. That's a very privileged standpoint that you can say that it, you're jealous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I know. And I'm aware and I have written a lot about the history of truly repressive societies. And I'm not any I don't have any illusions about preferring to live in one of those. But I think it is legitimate to say that that the culture that we're in right now feels pretty dispiriting. Well, you know, I so, said, you know, the, the the Soviets used to joke like, you know, we we shoot the poets, but at least we read them, right? So like that it, what would be terrible is if we have to have a choice, which I think we're often kind of theoretically confronted with between a tolerant society where art doesn't matter and a repressive society that says like, oh yeah, like this is important and that's why we're going to ban it. And I mean, what's exciting about Hickey, at least at his best, is that there's there's both the sense that it should be free and enfranchising, and it's really important and is making claims which might be bad. It might be claims that we would you know really disagree with and find objectionable, but that those can both be true and we need to hold on to them. Yeah, where do you take that now? How you can be excited about like being excited about Siegfried and Roy now does not feel you know usefully transgressive and like it's. Uh, resisting the dominant values. Uh, I think that there may be a, a mythology that somehow there's less enthusiasm today or less places for artists to work today. I mean, I think one of the lessons of Dave and one of the lessons that probably that he took from Foucault as well is that the more power there is in a culture, the more sort of holes there are in which one can work. In the 90s, during the time when, it was, when I originally did most of my work, people were complaining the same thing. There's no place to work today. These, you have these oppressive institutions. And Dave used to say, power's all around you. Everyone's just afraid to go around and pick it up. And we use it as an excuse. I should have paused there because that would be the end of the podcast. Power is all around you, and we're all just afraid to to, yeah. to pick it up. <laughs> um, we're often we're often used as an excuse. This notion of how do you make a splash when there's so much money and uh, yeah. institutions that are doing all that are controlling it all. And the fact is that the more of that there is, the more places there are. And I think that's why Dave had an impact on students as well. It's because he, he made them realize that. You could do your work. I used to complain to Dave. One of the things I learned from Dave is I used to complain tremendously about a small little magazine and not getting the attention or the or the, having the impact that I wanted to have. And Dave used to say that that's why I have power. 
that's where my power lies. And that and and one reason I stopped publishing when I stopped is because I realized that the only place for me to go was to become a another institution. I mean, I've not been able to do that, yeah. but it was like either become Freeze magazine, you know, and start fairs, or I dis or I disappear. I chose to disappear, which I think was the right choice. I that disagree with none of successful, but I think that to maintain yourself in a, one of these yeah. small places is where the best work can be take place. And that can still take place in our culture today. Um, I want to agree with all of that, Gary, and just kind of differ or nuance it to say that my complaint about sort of the dispirited existence in this culture is not that the institutions are preventing us from doing the work, from, from picking up the power that's lying around. It's that I'm waiting for somebody to do it. And I actually think if you ask me about the state of sort of, let's say, criticism, the kind of work that Blake does, and to a lesser extent, I do, I see people taking up the pow- that power all over the place. I see all sorts of interesting things happen. I think it's a much more interesting moment, sort of crit- critically, intellectually, than five years ago or 10 years ago, where I'm not sure I'm seeing it yet, but I wouldn't necessarily be as tied into it, would be in these other realms of culture, it would be in visual art, or in poetry, or in you know literature, or in music, or in film. So I'm waiting for those to. I 100% agree with you that it's there to be taken and asserted the power, the cultural power. I don't think that necessarily means that it will be or is, and I think that's a dynamic that a lot of us have hypothesized, but are waiting to see materialize. Well, you can't wait for other people to. Well, I'm doing the thing I do. This is what I do. I write. This is what you do. I so write. I podcast. I mean, I'm taking up my this my power. Yeah, I'm feeling empowered. I think so. I'm not waiting for anybody. I just don't have any paintings to put out into the world, or songs, or movies, or or novels, or something like that. You know, I you mean, I don't think there's I, good novels and paintings and films being made today compared to in the past. Is that? I'm not saying there aren't there good are. ones. I'm saying that I think. What I'm looking for, as a, as, a, as I said, a self-anointed intellectual historian of the present is kind of scenes, is moments, is movements, is trends, is microcultures. So places where that is sort of coalescing and there's a few people and maybe, you know, one or two of them at the center in the way that like you and Dave were at the center of the art issue scene and things like that. So I don't know. I'm not as pessimistic as I, as I made it sound. But I am waiting. I feel like I'm waiting for some things to happen that I haven't seen happen yet. But of course, I don't know what they are because they haven't happened. I'm very attracted to you know Gary's summons. That like, the, in <laughs> fact, the, as as the French you know used to say, the worst things are the better, right? Because you know the the, the more powers going down, the more points of resistance there are. So, I mean, but the thing I do struggle with is you know, the sense that to the extent that all of the institutions in the market now are so much closer that what's the thing to be excited about that feels different or unrecuperable, right? I mean, everything, and Isiki is the first to point out, everything does get recuperated by the system eventually, right? It's, right. it's uh, transgressive potential is, you know, dampened and it's institutionalized, it's museified. But now it, it it's difficult to escape the sense of this having already happened, you know, in advance. But then I guess when Hickey was writing in the 90s, it's not as though people hadn't spent a generation talking about the society of the spectacle, uh, all the moves were already made. And I mean, I guess what's exciting about Hickey, maybe this is something to write about, 
is that then he takes the things that are the most spectacular, that are the most fake and showy. So it's not just some of it's marginal stuff, like the things that are socially marginal or like Maplethorpe's that are being you know criminalized. But some of it is you know Siegfried and Roy, right? Like right at the very very center, the most showy, and in his mode of enjoying it, he works something subversive. And maybe in the moment of critical poptimism, that move isn't possible anymore. Right. Like that particular move. But yeah, I guess what maybe what what Hickey kind of licenses is the hope that some way that the critic enjoys the thing can make even the most apparently central, normative, uninteresting cultural item suddenly radiate this this new transgressive power. I mean, it helps to be a genius, right? But yeah, um, I think I think that's the goal. I think that's the goal is not to to lament how there's no scene so much as to make a scene out of the normative. Maybe is the way mm-hmm. of uh, the way that particular move of Dave, which isn't just Dave's move; it's an old queer move to look at the most spectacular thing and make that the 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 focus of of attention. When I think that. There may be something like that in the culture today, and I, I can't say that doesn't exist, that people aren't doing it. I don't follow the scenes, as it were, as much as to know. And I did the way then, when I published then, I did. I was at the center of at least something, however small it was. But um, I could tell where it was happening. Yeah. And that's because I was there. And I, Let me, I want to end, I want to end, because I've, I've occupied a lot of your guys' time on a question that none of us will probably be able to answer, but but I'll put it out there and then I'll, I'll give a sort of answer off to the side of it to give you guys to, some time to think about how to answer it, which is if you had to identify something, a person, a scene, a text, a film, a song, that's kind of in that space that we're talking about that we'd like to see occupied, what would it be right now? And I think my my what I was going to I had this conversation um, a few years ago when my book came out, I was interviewed on Jeff Schellenberger's podcast. Jeff subsequently went on to be the managing editor at Compact Magazine, where he is now. So it's relevant to our conversation in that sense. But I, I brought up something similar and it was in the context of Dave, obviously, and what Jeff proposed and I rejected and I sort of stand by this rejected rejection is that the really interesting cultural energies were on the kind of alt right that if you went on sort of 4chan or 8chan or whatever whatever the platforms or the spaces were, you would find these sort of excrescences or, or upwellings of kind of subversive, transgressive, vital energy that was really interesting. And the way in which I rejected it was I said, I don't deny that those things are there in a kind of inchoate form, but I think until they are mediated by somebody of a sort of, you know, truly high level sort of artistic, creative, intellectual capacity, then they don't, then they're not what I'm talking about. Like, it's one thing to say, here is a sort of pool in which interesting cultural energies are bubbling up. But the actual thing that you want that changes, that has impact, that tears us out of ourselves, that shatters us, that gives us this sort of true kind of experience of beauty or aesthetic pleasure has to be put into the world by somebody with with great artistic capacity and that that's what you just it did it it didn't exist in any remotely meaningful form with this sort of alt-right energy 
So that's I do I and I and I persist in thinking that's not the answer. And if it were the answer, we would have seen some manifestation of it that we could talk about that would be obvious, and we don't. But I don't know. Do you guys is is there a place that you you see signs of life, vitality? <laughs> I gave you as much time as I could with my so, so, you know, anecdote. I, 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 in general, I think I, I, I think the avant-garde is, is is stupid. You know, we we we've had like for a hundred years, like a hundred years ago, we had an avant-garde. They did all the moves that are possible for an avant-garde. You can't shock the bourgeoisie anymore. It's not interesting. Yeah, the left in '68 was already exhausted, so the right copying their moves and thinking they're being edgy is not interesting. They don't make good art, but. I do think there are lots of scenes that have like exciting cultural energy that has not yet been represented in art. And so like for most of this year, I've been uh, complaining with one of my close gay friends about how like we hate all the contemporary gay novels. We hate Greenwell, Brandon Jackson, like these guys. And recently he started writing a novel, like since this summer, I, I think maybe we've like, you know, worked up a dynamic where maybe kind of bullied him into writing the novel that I want to read. And one of the things that I'm excited about in the novel is that it has a bunch of different gay voices, like different kind of gay social types, which is something that I think has really been missing from contemporary gay novels. They're very like auto-fictional. Yeah. Greenwell's very in his own head. Whereas if you read like Dancer from the Dance, there are these really funny, campy, queeny characters that have like this beautiful way of talking. And so one of the main characters in the novel is a, a Barry's instructor. It was based on my friend's actual Barry's instructor who... You know, I pretty much every day check this guy's TikTok. He always has like really stupid, unself-knowing content. He's really ridiculous, like fun figure. And this is like a human type in the gay world that I have not seen in fiction, right? The world of the fancy gym and the weird human beings that are in it who are very upbeat because they have to be for their job because they you know they get paid per class so they want you to kind of fall in love with them but also they hate themselves because this isn't their first career they wanted to be actors they're like 40 and all of the the richness of this like, particular cultural space i feel like having an excitement about what's going on around you maybe is more uh, you know from a hickian perspective kind of an interesting source of cultural renewal then you know i'm going to have like an anti-liberal version of like a french avant-garde from the 60s that, that seems so i think the idea of there being a scene or a someone who bubbles up is never been really what the case is these things are happening everywhere and one finds one's own interests and it strikes me that the old monolithic, there is an old monolithic view of there being a scene that somehow matters. And that, I think it's become more apparent to us that that's not the case. So I suspect there are there are communities of desire, as Dave, I might have called them, I don't know if I like that terminology, but there are communities of desire in places that I, yeah. places in the world that I have no idea about. And I think that always will be. That's how people survive. And that was one of the lessons of, for me of Dave's work is that we survive by creating those places or finding those things. And to expect it just to, to try to find it elsewhere, I, I think is problematic. I mean, both of you are in a what I see as a more of a traditional um, intellectual community yeah. that I'm not 
personally part of. And that community is, you're not going to find it in that community. <laughs> it's just not going to be there. And you know that, and that's sort of the frustration of what you do. But it's never, there's always been the assumption that that's the, you know, and to make a career, you need to go get things in the, you know, in the East Coast uh, literary publications. So it makes sense. But that's not where it's going to happen. So we can't say, where is it in there? Or, you know, when's the, you know, when's the New York Review of Books going to come out with the, the fabulous genius? Well, they, they will. It's after it's the case that it actually bubbled up somewhere, I suppose. So I don't know if I, I, I don't have the skepticism that it doesn't exist today. I also am very pessimistic that I don't know if I can find it for myself. Because I've just, I, it's just my own life. It's just harder and harder. But I don't think that's a problem with the culture. I think that maybe be a problem with me i couldn't tell if, if that was ending it on a positive note or a negative note uh it's all there <laughs> but i'm not gonna find it and neither are you yeah. <laughs> the, the neither are you wasn't spoken no that was it was i think uh, the, the balls in our court okay well it was a little bit of like it's not going to come out of the scene that we're in but i think that my i, I didn't mean that, that as a, mean... i didn't think that as a criticism i really did no no i, I mean also I you know i i'm not in good with the nyrb people i don't know if you, you know uh, so. blake's kind of blake's more out on the margins right you know I, than I, you think he is gary out in bulgaria ever, ever more marginal I, um all right well, well i gotta run okay thank right. you guys it's a pleasure. We'll we'll meet yes. again soon, at least online. Okay. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye bye. Bye. This was an episode of Eminent Americans, the podcast. If you like the podcast, subscribe to it uh, and subscribe to the newsletter of the same name, Eminent Americans, the newsletter. Recommend it to your friends. Rate it on the platform on which you listen to it. Beam good vibes about it out into the universe. Thank you to my producer, Nick Worthen, and thank you to you, my listeners. This is a labor of love for me, and I do genuinely appreciate your attention, particularly if you've gotten all the way here to the end of all things. Feel free to email me with questions, thoughts, observations, even diatribes at djops at gmail.com. That's D as in Daniel, J as in James, ops as in ops or Oppenheimer at gmail.com. Have a great day.